1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 9 through 12. Going to cover just a few verses this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, follow along there, or it'll be on the screen behind me. Verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's stop right there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Fathers, we get into your word today. As you inspired Paul to write to a church, may the words that we read today inspire us to be a Christ-like church, to be a church that's full of love, a church that that reaches out beyond these four walls, that's a witness to a world that's lost and dying. Father, we worship today and we thank you for the first advent that you came in the flesh that you would live a perfect life, that you would be the sacrifice for our sins, and that you would rise again. And we long for your return to make all things right. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Living in light of his return has been the series that we've been going through. So what does it look like to live in light of his return? We know that he came for the first advent. He was born in a lowly major. He was humble, and he was a little humble king, even as we have sang today. But what will it look like when he returns as a triumphant king? We long for that return, and so our lives should match the longing that we have. And that was the church of Thessalonica. They longed for the return of Christ. And so Paul writes to them here and gives them some more instructions on how to live in light of his return. So a life that lives in light of his return loves others. It seems simple enough, right? What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and... The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Seems pretty reasonable that a life that is waiting on the return of Christ would then in the meantime choose to love others. That we would take the opportunity that is given to us and say, you know what, I will pour my life out in a way that shows the love of Christ to those who are in need. Paul here ending this charge that he has made to uh, be sanctified, to walk in sanctification, to avoid sexual immorality, He now turns to brotherly love, love one another inside the church, be there for one another inside the church. Don't allow your definition of what love is to be formed by what is outside of the church, but let it be formed by God himself. So he says something here, which is interesting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You've been taught by God. So love is taught by God. An actual Christ-centered love, what the definition of love truly is, is not learned by the culture. It's not learned by this world. It's not learned from, from the Hallmark movies that a lot of you are watching this time of year. It's not learned in that. It's learned and taught to us by God. You laugh because it's true. God teaches us what it means to love what true love is. I will have several verses today that will not be on the screen. So if you're taking notes, I will try my best to to say them slowly. Isaiah 54, 13. 
All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The beautiful picture that we see from Scripture is that the new covenant gives us a promise that we are no longer holding ourselves to laws that are written on tablets, but there has been a new law that is written on our hearts, that he will equip us and give us his very own presence through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to then teach us what it looks like to have a Christ-like love, what the law of love is in the life of a believer. In fact, 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. What better way to learn what love is than from the source of love? As Jonathan Lehman writes, he says, God is love like oceans are wet and suns are hot. Love is essential. Love is definitional of God. His goodness is loving. His holiness is loving. His judgments are loving. There is no dictionary definition of love hovering outside the universe, independent of God, so that God answers to it. Rather, God in himself provides the definition, the reality of what love is. Love is not an abstract concept, but a personal quality of God. Anything called love that does not have its source in God is not love. Today, you can justify pretty much anything by invoking the word love. If they love each other, then of course we should accept it. Or if God is loving, then surely he wouldn't blank. Yet notice what ha what's happening in these statements. We're no longer interested in the God who is love. Rather, we're interested in our own ideas of love, which become God. God is love is traded for love is God. As Paul writes to a church in Thessalonica, he writes to a church that's dealing with a lot of different issues. Persecution, uh, the perversion of the culture that's around them, their longing for Christ's return, and it's causing some turmoil that we'll get into next week. He writes to them and he says, you don't need to be taught or written to about love because you've been taught about love from God himself. The love of God is being written on your hearts. So when we don't get our definition of what love is from God, we get it from somewhere else. And where do we get it? From our sinful imagination. Our fallen, depraved minds and imaginations and emotions, we come up with all kinds of ideas of what love should be, and then we try to make God fit into that mold. This is the way the world is going right now. We use the word love to justify sin. We use the word love to justify breaking moral boundaries. We use the word love to justify extramarital affairs, sexual immoral behavior, divorce, 
fornication, even cohabitation outside of marriage. We use the word love and the definition of love in ways that pervert what love truly is. God is love. And anything that is called love that is outside of who God is and his character is not love. When we don't get our definition of love from God, we distort it into an idea of accepting whatever it is, whether it's right or wrong. When we don't get our definition of love from God, we make love the ultimate authority rather than God's word the ultimate authority. In fact, when we don't get our definition of what love is from God, we remove the institution of marriage between one man and one woman as the picture of what commitment and covenant should be. In fact, we redefine all kinds of things to fit our own sinful imaginations. And we expect God to fit into that. And that's not true because true love is taught by God. Now, this week, I imagine that there are some of you that every time you get in the car or every time you get to your house, you're going to start playing some Christmas music because it's that time of year. Some of you have been doing it since July, and that's just not acceptable, okay? Not acceptable behavior. And you're going to listen to some of your favorite Christmas carols, and, and I love Oh Holy Night. Anybody love Oh Holy Night? In the second verse, it says, truly he has taught us to love one another. You remember that? Truly he's taught us to love one another. There's a, there's a love that can only be taught by God, and it can only be taught by the transforming institution of his spirit into our lives. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Truly he has taught us to love one another. His law is love. It's written on our hearts. In his gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ came in the first advent, the incarnation of Christ, he lived the perfect life that none of us can live, and he died in our place, taking the wrath of God so that we could be found forgiven. And then he rose again, showing us that it was, it was paid in full. That gives us peace with God. Love is taught by God, but love is practiced towards one another. B, love is practiced towards one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. The church of Thessalonica was a loving church. This is a great description of this church. They were known for their love. Can you imagine being a church that's just known for your love? Man, that church, they just love each other. That church is always loving on people. That church is always going above and beyond. They're just, they're just loving and not only was the church in Thessalonica loving one another inside these house churches, they were known for loving all the churches in all of Macedonia. Do you love other churches? Mark Howell says a church might have all the necessary ingredients to do church, but if it lacks love, it is not being a church. We cannot expect the people on the outside to come in if the people on the inside do not love each other in such a way that their faith shines out. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. As Paul writes about love, he gives us a definition here. Oftentimes you'll use these scriptures, or I'll use these scriptures, in a marriage ceremony. 
And it really is not about a husband and a wife. It's about the relationships that happen inside the church. And this is a description of what a church should look like if a church is full of love for one another. If you've been taught love by God, then this is what it looks like when it's practiced. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let me stop right there. A church, as Mark Howell says, may have all the necessary ingredients to do church. But if it lacks love, it's not being a church. Well, we can gather together today. We can sit in pews. We can sing songs of praise. We can read a letter from the apostles. We can partake of the Lord's Supper. We can have all the necessary ingredients of being a church. But if we lack love, we're not being a church. In fact, we can sing songs of praise, but if we lack love, we're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. We can have all the theology. We can have read all the books. We could do all the studying. We could have all the faith. But if we don't love each other, we're nothing. In fact, we could be so sacrificial. We could be the most giving people. We could lay our lives on the altar. We could sign up. We could go live in a hut in a third world country and give people the gospel. But if we don't love, nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love is not some sentimental feeling. Love is a demonstrated action. Did you get this? Demonstrating the love that we've been taught is being patient, being kind, not being envious or boastful, not being arrogant or rude, not insisting in our own way, not being irritable or resentful, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but bearing with one another, believing things with one another, hoping together. Love never ends. It's undeniable that as we get into this Christmas season that we are marked with the, the joyous time of giving. It's a time to give. It's a time to share. It's a time to love. It's a time to have family over or go to family that you see once or twice a year. It's that time of year. But it's undeniable that Scripture calls us not to just say we love, but to act, to demonstrate our love. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born in a time of, of adversity. Isaiah 58, 6 through 7. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them? And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Micah 6.8 He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. We get into the New Testament, Luke 6, 35 through 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as the Father is merciful. John 15, 12 through 13. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Romans 12, as Paul gives a charge to the church in 9 through 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. God's call to demonstrate love is undeniable. To put others ahead of ourselves, to love people we don't even like, to love people we may not even know, to use our resources generously to take care of those who are in need. We're to love like Christ loves, sacrificially. And we can't love like Christ if we've not been filled with his Holy Spirit. This is a season for loving others sacrificially, but let it, let it not be just a season. Let it be the description of the church. Let it grow more and more. That's what he says. Love should grow more and more. That's point C. Love should grow more and more. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. This is the present tense verb, which means it's, it's ongoing. If your love is growing more and more, if God has filled you with love, if he's taught you what love is, if you're then demonstrating that love towards others, it shouldn't just be a one-time thing. Yeah, I did that. I loved them. I'm not going to do it again. Like It shouldn't be like that. It should be an ongoing thing. I'm going to continue to love. I'm going to continue to be patient and kind. I'm going to continue. How do you continue to grow more and more in the love of Christ? You continue to be obedient more and more to Christ. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. John 14, 21 and 23. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love that grows more and more is a love that doesn't put limits on God. It doesn't stop at inconvenience. A love that grows more and more doesn't stop at discomfort or awkwardness. A love that grows more and more doesn't block God's authority in certain areas of life. A love that grows more and more grows in obedience more and more. So let me ask you, has there been a time in your Christian walk, if you're a believer, let me ask you this, if, has there been a time in your Christian walk that you were more loving towards others than you are today? Has there been a time in your Christian walk that you were more in love with Christ than you are today? How do you know? Has there been a time in your life when you were more obedient to his word than you are today?
Love should be growing more and more. It's taught by God. It's demonstrated, practiced towards others. And it should be continuing to grow more and more. So let's live a life awaiting his return. So a life that lives in light of his return, loves others, and number two, lives respectably. Lives respectably. The word is respectably means good, proper, respectful. So if you could boil it down to two things today, what are you going to do in light of his return? Well, I'm going to love others and I'm going to be respectable. <laughs> Aspire. Aspire means an eagerness of a pursuit, an aim, an ambition at life. And so this is what he says in verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. I, I put it in today's language, and you're either going to love it or hate it. Live respectably by quietly minding your own business. <laughs> Mixed reviews. Okay. You ever been told to mind your own business? Man, I have. <laughs> Jeff, you need to mind your own business. Aspire to live quietly. This means to be still. Is that not already the message that we've had this morning? During this Christmas season, the season of Advent, that we would just stop, slow down, look to Christ. Don't get wrapped up in all the things that are going on, all the frustrations, all the frenzy. Just aim, slowing down, looking to Christ. This is the idea of just sit down and be calm. <laughs> this is the time of year where you get together with family and there's always that one gathering where there's all the grandkids or all the kids and it's just chaos for a minute. Like they're just, they're just running through and you just want to grab your kid or your grandkid and you just want to lovingly embrace them and just sit them down and go, will you just sit down for just a minute? <laughs> Would you just mind your own business for just a minute? Just be quiet. I feel like this is what Paul's doing here. He just grabs the church, Thessalonica, and he goes, would you just calm down for a minute? Now, in context, this is partly due to the current situation, right? They're facing persecution. They are living in a culture that's very perverted. And they are awaiting the return of a Savior, and they are so... They are so captured and preoccupied by the return of Christ that some of them, as we're going to learn, have quit their jobs. They are, they are upset, as we'll look at next Sunday, that they have loved ones who have passed away, and they're like, are they going to miss out on this? They're just wrapped up in a frenzy. Hey, I'm going to give you an idea. Why don't you just aim at calming down and being quiet and living respectably, a quiet life appears to be a description of people who don't cause problems in the community. A church filled with the love of God is not a church that is filled with gossip and slander. It's not no nosy. It's not a bunch of people who are all up in people's businesses causing issues, drama, and controversies. In fact, a person who lives a quiet life is in contrast to a person who lives a loud and evil life. John MacArthur would say, in, in anticipation of the Lord's return, believers are to lead peaceful, peaceful lives, free of conflict and hostility towards others, which is a witness to the transforming power of the gospel. This Christmas, 
do we need to quiet down? Do we need to live quietly? Do we need to seek to live reverently in eager anticipation of his second advent as we celebrate the first? Live respectably by working heartily with your hands. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. Again, in the context of this, the society and the culture in which Paul is writing, they look down on those who worked with their hands. They viewed those as servants who were lower on the uh, social order. But Paul here says, listen, just quietly go to work. Be busy. As you're waiting on the Lord's return, continue. Continue to work. Continue to be a good witness. As I already mentioned, some of them had already quit their jobs and were just outside looking up at the skies. Not him. No, one him. This is the call to mind your own business and to work with your hands and to not be idle. As Warren Wiersbe says, idle people spend their time interfering with the affairs of others and getting themselves and others into trouble. Believers who are about the Father's business do not have the time or desire to meddle in the affairs of others. Idle time. Idle time. My wife and I, we have a joke that if we catch each other on social media, and you can always tell because you're just doing this, just scrolling, we'll say to one another, hey, what are you doing? And our response has to be, just wasting my life. Just wasting my life. That's what I was doing, idle time. Idle time is just scrolling through social media. Idle time is just seeing what other people are doing. Idle time just starts judging, starts trolling others, starts deciding whether or not to give its two cents to stir the pot. Just idle time. First Timothy, Paul writes, 513, he says, besides that, they learn to be idlers. Going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Idle hands, maybe you've heard this, are the devil's <laughs> you have heard it. It's not in Scripture. That's not a verse. But Ecclesiastes says something. It says in 1018, Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through laziness, the house leaks. Meaning there's a lot of things in our lives that we could avoid. A lot of tragedies, a lot of sins, a lot of circumstances that we could avoid if we would have just been working heartily for the Lord. In fact, there's times when we look back at our life and we say, man, if I had just been doing what I should have been doing, I would have never got into the situation I'm in. Am I right? Martin Luther said it this way, if I rest, I rust. In your Christian walk, if you begin to rest, not in resting in Christ and his work. That's what you're supposed to do. That's the gospel. But if you begin to become idle, you'll notice it in your relationship with him and others. So live respectably. 
by walking properly as a witness. Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Again, go to work so that you're not being a nuisance, you're not being lazy, you're not causing others pain. Walk properly. Walk properly is to live in such a way as to have a reputation among those in the church and those outside of the church as someone who is loving, someone who is honest, someone who is responsible, and someone who is faithful. What's your reputation? Adam Clark described walking properly as becomingly, decently, respectably, and in consistent actions of purity, holiness, gravity, and usefulness for Christian calling. Because the gospel we proclaim to believe will only be as believable as the changed lives we demonstrate. Whether we like it or not, the world is watching to see if what you say you believe is actually true. The world is watching to see if you actually love people, if you demonstrate it. The world is watching in how you handle your time when you have idle time. So live properly, not allowing the sinful habits of your life to stifle your sanctification. And if there's sinful hiccups that come along the way for short periods of time, be quick to confess them and repent. Be quick to abide. It's not that you need to try harder. You might just need to hold on tighter. So I'm going to close with a story by Leo Tolstoy, a Russian author, in a writing called Where Love Is, God Is. He tells a story about a lonely old Russian cobbler who was reading Luke 7, about a Pharisee who did not welcome Jesus into his home. He thought... If he came to me, would I welcome him? Pondering this, he fell asleep. Suddenly, the old man heard a voice calling his name, Martin, Martin, look out in the street tomorrow, for I shall come. The next day, he kept watch out his window as he worked, and he saw an old man that he already knew. He invited him in by the fire. He gave them, him some tea. He told the man about Christ's mercy as he had been reading the Gospels. The old man listened with tears running down his cheeks and left, thanking him for the hospitality. A while later, Martin saw outside a woman dressed in shabby summer clothes, trying to keep her crying baby warm. He invited her in to sit by the fire. She was destitute and had pawned her shawl the day before to get something to eat. So he fed her. He gave her an old coat to wrap around her baby, and he gave her some money so she could get her shawl out of the pond. Later, he helped reconcile a poor woman and a boy who stole an apple from her. So the day passed, but there had been no appearance of Christ. That evening, Martin lit his lamp. And he opened his Bible. He had intended to read where he had left off the night before, but the Bible fell open to another place. Before he read, he heard a voice call out, Martin, it is I. And he looked up and he saw the old man he had helped. And then he vanished. This was repeated by the woman and her baby and with the woman and the boy that he had served that day. Then he read out of Matthew 25, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And then at the bottom of the page, Truly, as you have done for the least of these, 
you've done it also for me. Martin understood that his dream had come true and that the Savior had really come to him that day and that he had welcomed him. My challenge to you as we enter this last week heading into Christmas, we're celebrating the first Advent. That Christ came and he dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. We celebrate that and we long and we anticipate the second coming of Christ. That he would return in the clouds just as he left. Until then, what do you do? Love others. Live respectably. Demonstrate that you are living in light of his return.